Making a micro-budget indie film utilizing a 10-state road trip over three weeks sounds like a really awesome time, especially when you come out of it with a gorgeous movie. I cannot wait to talk to my guest today to hear all about that because he did that as a first-time filmmaker today on On The Fly Filmmaking. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Welcome back, everyone, to On The Fly Filmmaking. I am your host, Mary Lou Mandel, and I'm very excited to talk to my guest today, Ethan Warren, who is a first-time filmmaker, writer, and director of West of Her. Thank you for joining us today, Ethan. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and uh, if you're listening on the podcast, it sounds a little bit different. If you're watching on YouTube, it might look a little bit different because we are talking to Ethan across the Internet through Skype. The, I just think technology is the best. I know, and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I was I was hoping to be in LA, but uh, we actually uh, got some good news a couple of weeks ago that the, my family is going to be getting a little bigger. So oh, I'm congratulations! Home, uh, good, I love that. Future, yeah. Good. Well, we've got the technology to make it happen. I'm glad that we can make this interview happen. And when you do come to LA, we will have you come into the studio. No Margaret, problem. Thank you. Awesome. So we're going to talk to Ethan today about his beautiful, beautiful movie, West of Her. Uh, so before we get into the actual movie, Ethan, I want to let everyone know where they can follow you um, on the internet and follow your work and your career. Sure. So my, my Twitter is at uh, Ethan R. A. Warren and my website is Ethan R. A. Warren dot com. And uh, between the two of those, uh, you should pretty much be able to find everything I'm doing uh, as, as a writer at this point. Yes. And I see here on your website, you are a multi hyphenate writer uh, that turned into a director filmmaker. So I want to talk about your journey from being a just a, a writer for plays and essays. I see that you have that on your website as well to making a feature length movie. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I use the term multi-hyphenate writer these days because uh, I, I just feel like just saying I am a writer. Um, I, I always feel like I uh, then just ramble out this long list of all, all these different things I do because um, I also do, I have my uh, master's in uh, fiction um, so I studied uh, prose writing uh, in grad school, and I have done some playwriting. Uh, I'm also a staff writer for the online film journal Brightwall Dark Room, where I write some critical essays, and yeah, I just, just do a little bit of everything. Right on. And then, so what got you into writing a film? So, uh, you know, film is, is the art form that has always um, sort of meant the most to me uh, and affected me the most uh, emotionally. I think it's it's the art form that really brings together uh, all of uh, you know all the ways that, that we can process art. It's it's got uh, the visual element and uh, it's got music and you know we can use all of the tools at our disposal in a way that uh, aren't necessarily available in uh, in other forms of of storytelling. And so it's it's always um, been a dream of mine to to make a movie, and it seemed so kind of uh, unattainable. Because, um, in particular, I, I am uh, not somebody who is always very sort of uh, type A um, and very sort of aggressive and, and going out there and uh, shaking hands and making connections and raising money and, and all of that. It doesn't come super naturally to me, uh, or it does not come very naturally to me. Um, <laughs> and, and the so people it, who can it, really uh, do that, it is a little supernatural. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it just always felt like, well, this is something that is just not um, something that I'm sort of emotionally predisposed to doing. Um, I went to uh, 
a four-week uh, sort of crash course intensive uh, film production course uh, in 2006 when I was in college. And um, we were up in, in uh, the coast of Maine, and for four weeks, me and uh, I think about eight other uh, film students uh, really just sort of ate, slept, and, and uh, is there any term for this? Ate, slept, and breathed uh, yeah. <laughs> filmmaking. You know, we were up at the crack of dawn every day uh, producing short films and, and working until we sort of crashed at the end of the day for four weeks. And we each produced uh, three short films uh, by the end of that, that four-week course. And I, my, my primary memory of that time, uh, along with all of the excitement, is just a real sense of sort of terror. Um, I, the, the story that I always go back to is uh, when we were producing my first short film, I, I got up at like five in the morning to go get coffee for the crew. And I was standing there in a Dunkin' Donuts in, uh, in coastal Maine having what I now recognize was a panic attack. And in my head, uh, I really sincerely believed I was having a heart attack and I thought I was going to die in this Dunkin' Donuts of, of just fear of, of letting everybody down and, and having this huge production just crash down around me. And after that, I said, well, I guess movie making isn't for me because it's only going to be this on a bigger scale. Like, I can do this. I made these three films that I really love, and uh, I made a connection there with um, a guy named Cameron Bryson, uh, who would stay a friend of mine and end up being the uh, producing partner for Westifer and my cinematographer on that. Um, and I thought, like, you know, this is this is great. This is fun. It's just eight people, uh, you know, grabbing a camera and a boom mic and, and some scripts and getting out there and making something, but there's no way I could take this to a bigger scale. And then, uh, you know, is, but the idea of making movies was just not something I could ever really let go. And so uh, in 2011, I wrote this screenplay, West of Her, uh, largely as sort of an exercise. Uh, can I write a screenplay? And the answer was yes. And, and as I, 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 when I was conceiving it, I didn't necessarily think uh, this is something that I could go and direct. Um, but as I was sort of spinning this story out, uh, the story that, that meant a lot to me, the idea of these uh, two people um, on this quest across the country, um, I realized that I was creating something really inadvertently that, that could be achieved on the same scale as these student films I had shot. And that got me really excited. And I, I reached back out to my old friend, Cameron, who uh, was now working as a professional director of photography up in Toronto. And I said, I've got the script and I feel like we could just do exactly what we did uh, on those those three shorts and, and just grab some other sort of like-minded young people and some equipment and just get out there and do it, um, which is what we did. That's amazing. And that's what we always try to encourage people who are listening or watching this show is you have to go out there and do it, whether it's your first time, your hundredth time. So much of, of getting a movie done is just the getting out there to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, it, it all seems so daunting. Um, you know, I, even when I started talking to Cameron, it was like, well, but then how are we ever going to actually put this together? I don't know how to make a budget. I don't know how to make a schedule. And really it, it turned out the answer is you just start, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, nobody's going to hand you a how to make a budget, uh, you know, handbook necessarily, uh, unless you go to film school, which, which I did not be on that four week course, but then you just sort of think, well, uh, this is how long it takes to drive across the country and, you know, multiply that by three meals a day, uh, by 11 crew members, how many bags of chips are we going to need for each lunch? And you just sort of add it up a little bit at a time. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that's, 
working backwards, so you're kind of um, reverse engineering your budget. Like budgets are hard for me as well. And you, you just kind of have to think of the bigger scope and then work backwards. What do we have to have? We have to feed people. We have to put them somewhere. If you're, you're shooting, especially this one's a road trip. You know, if you have to put them up yes. somewhere, you've got to feed them and we've got to get across the country. You got to get from point A to point B. So I'm like, I'm super, super impressed at this because it's hard enough to shoot something in a single city, but you went across 10 states. That's right. Yeah. 10 states. We started in Chicago was where the, the crew met up, uh, went across the Great Plains, uh, over to Colorado, down uh, through the Rockies to the southwest, and then back east to uh, we landed in Tennessee. Nice. So and yeah, it's sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so it's um, you mentioned the the uh, sort of how difficult it is to create that schedule and that budget, but uh, because it was a road movie, there's there's really no room for error. Uh, if you sort of know like, well, we've got the permit to be at the Grand Canyon on this day. We're gonna to have to get ourselves there, uh, and and it made it a lot harder to begin with. But then, uh, by doing all that uh, planning beforehand, it really allowed things to move uh, really sort of smoothly once you're actually out there with the camera. And that was a huge blessing because uh, you know the last thing we needed was more uh, ambiguity than you have just by you know virtue of trying to put the film together. Yeah. No, that, that it's it's so so impressive. So to give uh, everyone a little bit of context, let's watch the trailer for your film West of Her. Why do you have to believe in this so much? Because I don't I don't believe in anything else. Because you know they're telling me something that I want to believe is true. You know if there could be anything else, then maybe everybody ends up all right and so will I. I mean, I've never felt all right, you know? I always felt like, um, I don't know, like a, a jigsaw piece from the wrong puzzle. Maybe we're all just pieces, you know. <coughs> pieces from different puzzles, random ones. And there's no point in figuring it out at all. All I know is that they give me a chance at making me not feel that way anymore. Like a lot of puzzle pieces or just one puzzle piece? You know what I mean. Wish I didn't. That is West of Her. You can check that out. Video on demand all over the internet. Definitely watch it. It's a gorgeous movie with a wonderful story. Uh, Ethan, give us a little rundown of what, uh, a synopsis of what your movie is about. Why do you have to believe in this sure. so <laughs> Um, Boy, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to actually just see the, the video. I was just hearing the audio in my ear and uh, it's it's got me very uh, sort of emotional a little bit. You know, it's, it's like I, I wrote that little speech uh, like seven years ago at, at such a seven different time in my ago, life. Wow. And then, uh, here I have it in my ear, uh, you know, 
being brought to life by this incredibly talented actor, uh, Ryan Carraway, and, and um, with that music uh, by our, our composer, Ariel Marks, that is just, you know, these two amazing artists, and, and Kelsey Siebster, who is also uh, there at the, at the beginning and the end of the dialogue, um, and, and just sort of feeling that that culmination of all of this work uh, is, is just sort of catching up with me all of a sudden. Oh my um, gosh, when's the last time you watched so, the movie? Oh my God, uh, in full, not not in quite a while. Uh, you know, at a certain point you just live with it so much yeah. uh, that you sort of stop being able to see it as anything other than like just sort of disconnected images and sounds the same way that like when you repeat a word right. uh, enough times it stops sounding like a word. So uh, I just watch it in sort of like bits and pieces now uh, rather than sitting down and watching it straight through. So, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the story. Um, it is uh, a road movie, like we said, across 10 states about these two young people who sign on with a mysterious organization to participate in um, sort of a, a mysterious uh, project that could be street art or could be something more. Um, it is inspired by the Toynbee tiles, which is a real unexplained phenomenon. Uh, of, uh, it's been happening for uh, decades, you know, 30, 40 years at this point, um, where in the streets of cities all across North America and probably beyond, I think, um, these small little linoleum tiles uh, appear uh, really embedded in the pavement uh, in, in a manner that's sort of like fossils, uh, seemingly overnight, and they each have the same very cryptic, uh, eerie message on them, and uh, nobody knows who's doing it and why. And uh, I read an article about that and just found it really, really tantalizing and exciting. Um, and particularly uh, the line in the article about uh, how given the, the um, size of this project, uh, it's very unlikely that it could be the work of just one person. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, was where I sort of picked up the ball and ran and, and thought like, well, who would ever sign on to do this and why? Um, and uh, it all really started came together pretty quickly from there as I sort of created these two characters who represented uh, two different ends of, of uh, the answer to that question, I guess. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So you guys definitely check that out. And now, like, I, I travel all the time across America in, like, random small towns. I'm going to have to look for these tiles. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've never seen... Oh, no, I have. I, I saw them in uh, New York for the first time a couple of years ago after we had finished the movie. Okay. Um, yeah, it, in uh, Boston, where I live, uh, they usually get torn up um, by the city. They consider it vandalism. Uh, but some cities uh, are usually a, a little more uh, open to it. New York and Philadelphia both have a really high concentration of them. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's talk about uh, production for this movie. You started, you said you wrote this seven years ago. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, well, actually, I wrote it uh, in 2010 um, as, a, as a short story. Uh, which was very bare, sort of, I mean, it was probably about 12 pages. Uh, so a lot of the uh, character development and really the plot elements of it uh, didn't exist in that version. And then when I started sort of casting around in my head for uh, what's a story that I have that could be expanded into a screenplay, uh, this came out really quickly. Uh, and it's sort of, it's a wonder to me that I ever thought it could be uh, just prose uh, when so much of the appeal of the story is, um, excuse me, seeing the uh, sort of sweep and the scope of uh, the American landscape. Yeah, so much of this is in the visuals to tell the story because right. of it yeah. being a travel thing and how it affects them and how it affects like the, the drive of their mission. And that was what was so exciting uh, and, and really 
put the inspiration in me to, to really uh, make this happen is it's like once once you have the idea uh, that you could really on a micro budget um, create something that has this epic feel it's like, well, now I, I got to see that because it doesn't exist yet. And I really wish it did. Yeah, that's great. So, OK, so 2010, you wrote it as a short story. Then it became yeah. a screenplay. Screenplay uh, in 2011. Yeah. OK, so about uh, a year started, later. OK. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I got in touch with uh, my friend Cameron uh, and we started to talk about it. We sort of moved into uh, a form of pre-production. Um, and then I actually I got into grad school. Um, and did my first year uh, of, of grad school uh, with this kind of on the back burner. We picked it up again the following uh, year and moved into pre-production. Uh, yeah, in, in fall 2012, and uh, right away we knew we we're gonna we're gonna get this on its feet uh, July of next year. And so pre-production, yeah, lasted a little bit under a year. Uh, production in 2013, editing and post-production, everything lasted, I guess, until. 2016 uh we premiered that spring and uh and toured it uh, around at different festivals and then it, it was out uh yeah this february that's february it's quite a so, to keep in order now yeah yeah though that that's really great and and thank you for sharing that timeline because i think a lot of people don't realize like it can take a long time for you to get your creative vision off the ground it doesn't have to happen right away especially if you're working on micro budget you're doing this on it's it's super super indie and you are just pulling the pieces together with uh, the resources you have at hand, it's not going to happen fast. So be patient with it and don't like give up on your, on your projects because they can still happen and still come out amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and so much of, of what the idea was behind this, uh, was the other thing that, that excited me and, and Cameron and my friend David, uh, ended up coming on as a producer as well. Um, was the idea that we could produce this ourselves, uh, that we we didn't need to go and find a more experienced producer necessarily, um, because any task that we thought of, it was like, well, we, we can do that. And so then consequently, it just means when you realize you can do everything, that means you're going to have to do everything yourselves, and it takes a while. Yeah. Um, so if, if we had had a larger, sort of more conventional team around us, uh, then yeah, we probably could have gotten it done a little faster, but when it's just a few guys putting their feet in front of each other uh, every day it's it's gonna take a while right and this being your project you directing it it's your script you probably had your hand in everything absolutely yeah um it's the the metaphor i usually use is uh that on the on the hard days it was like pushing a boulder uphill and on the easy days it was like pushing a boulder on a flat surface yeah uh, that's a really great way of putting it but of course, I mean, it was that it was so exciting. Uh, you know, every step of the way, I was learning things and and meeting these amazing technicians and artists uh, who were helping me put this together and learning a little bit about all these things that I, I didn't even I didn't know what color correction looked like uh, until we were out there uh, doing the the color correction and doing the grade on and off trick. As I said with our color correction guy, I would say um, as we have it up on the screen, like do do the trick, and he would turn the color correction on and off and be like, oh my God, it just it, it's a movie now. Yes, it makes it pop. It goes from just like a, an image to like a wow image. And that's, exactly. you know, it, it's, it's like your filters in Instagram, but on a much, much more intense scale. Yes, yeah, with a lot more man hours. Involved. Yeah, and then and that's something that's interesting. And I I, I want to ask you if, as a writer, when you were writing the script, were you considering the look of it at that point? So uh, not really. Mm -hmm. um, that's another thing is is I um, 
because I, I didn't have the formal training that a lot of directors do, I didn't really have the vocabulary for things like look. Uh, and so that's where Cameron, who is this genius uh, cinematographer, obviously, uh, as you can see in the finished product, he is, is really, really talented. He uh, really uh, sort of guided me through that process and, and helped me articulate um, sort of what, uh, what look I was looking for without even knowing that was what I was looking for. Um, and so we would uh, pull together sort of the influences that we were thinking of and talk about what made those work. Um, and it, it sounds now like such, such uh, like the way you would work with a, a small child, <laughs> uh, but he asked me to take the map of the country uh, with our route on it and say like, so for this scene here that we have in Colorado, what colors do you see in your head? when you're thinking about it, what's the like emotional color for you? Yeah, no, that's, and that's a really say, brilliant oh, okay. way of doing it. Like I, I've heard uh, like some of the other people that we've interviewed who were directors of uh, photography work in that way of like, just give me some colors, then I will come up with like a sense of what I, you are thinking because as a director, it's not your job to really come up with that first and, and be able to articulate it. It's their job to get it out of you. Right, yeah, well, and, and we talked a lot about what we didn't want it to be, um, whereas, uh, in my first conception of it, I said, well, we'll do it as a mumblecore. We'll just go to Best Buy uh, and, and grab some camcorders and do it like uh, the, the Duplass Brothers' first movie was The Puffy Chair. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the skill, uh, the scale rather that I imagined we were going to be working with. Uh, and Cameron said, well, you know, the problem with those movies is they don't look good <laughs> at all. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we started very quickly moving farther and farther away from the idea of pitching it as kind of a mumblecore thing, although it uh, it does often get lumped into that category when people describe it, I think just by virtue of how small the story is. Yeah. Uh, but we, we were very much going for a more sort of sweeping cinematic uh, feel than a lot of those movies do. Do you happen to remember so. what camera he shot on? Oh yeah, we, we used the Red Epic. Good, uh, yeah, that it was looks like that. that. I, I said, yeah, from the beginning I said like, I really wanna shoot this on Red and it, started out as a very sort of unsophisticated uh, reason, which was just, uh, you know, all I knew was that really good movies that I liked a lot were shot on red, and mm -hmm. so that's what we were gonna do. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what we ended up doing. And then what were some of these other movies, do you remember, that you were like, these were on red, I feel like that's what I need? Uh, God, I mean, was uh, a lot of the Marvel movies, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, those are all on red, I think. Um, it's, I'm blanking now on what it would have been uh, circa 2012, 2011. Um, but tons but of yeah, things, tons of things are shot on sorry. red, and then they, red had come out with that that point a more accessible camera. Uh, is that the one that you used? You said it was a red camera, but which one was it? It was Epic. Uh, we used the Epic, yeah, yeah. red Epic. Yeah. yeah, they had like a, a few different ones uh, around that time that people could use. So I started to see in more indie films. Uh, it's still expensive, but it was not completely inaccessible not like uh, cinematic cameras like you like an indie budget film is not going to just get an alexa and no and be able to like make that happen but you can get this digital camera this really high-end digital camera and make a movie and plus it's modular so it w it's probably easier to move around yes absolutely and that's uh, obviously a ton of the movie is, is handheld so that was important that uh that cam could have the thing up on his shoulder and and be Really, as they say, running and gunning. Running and gunning on the fly, would you yeah. say? I would say that, exactly. Yes, yeah. awesome. Uh, so you you had uh, your DP work with you on the look, and then how about the sound of it? You have a really like beautiful, beautiful soundtrack. Your composer like just really did a great job. How was that process? 
that was uh, was really exciting. Um, so uh, the composer is Ariel Marx, uh, who has really had a, a really huge spring uh, and, and winter this year. Uh, she uh, when I when I met her, she was just a grad student, just a grad student at one of the best uh, programs around. Um, and uh, she now is is scoring uh, the movie The Tale was just at Sundance uh, with this uh, movie with Laura Dern that uh, got picked up by HBO. So she's uh, really a star on the rise. Uh, and I'm lucky I met her when I did. Um, so I, I realized that uh, a really good way to, to meet um, really talented people would be to reach out to grad schools and say, uh, could you put me in touch with, with your students who are maybe sort of starting out and are, are looking for their first big opportunities? And I said the, um, the reference point was uh, Beast of the Southern Wild, which is one of my favorite scores ever. Um, and I, I really like that that score is very um, sort of melodic. Uh, I wanted a score that you could get stuck in your head. Uh, having Americana influences uh, and and um, instrumental palette was very important to me too. Uh, having it with a sort of folk roots uh, vibe, and those were all things that Ariel was was really excited about. She's uh, a fiddler herself, um, and so we we put it together uh, uh, that way. And then um, meanwhile, I also used uh, the Smithsonian archives uh, to find a lot of. Uh, I use the term antique country music that really bothered somebody at a festival Q&A once uh, when I said, oh, yes, this antique music, uh, you could hear an audible, like, irritated sound from the crowd. Um, because you called it antique? Antique music, yeah, I guess. But, I mean, it's these these recordings are from, uh, in some cases, the early days of sound recording. That was really uh, interesting to me. Well, would they, uh, to, what would they have preferred you called it? Like I have no vintage? idea, uh, and I don't what? know if, if that even is a term, uh, but it's what I say because it feels right. Yeah, um, it feels right. It makes sense. Like, that, that's what, like, communication, like, you understood the words I said. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in, or I was at that time in my 20s, and yeah. he was probably a music historian somewhere, and I was just a whippersnapper. But, oh, you whippersnapper. Uh, awesome. Okay, so you found all of this, like, yeah. really, yeah. like, old school country music that was made in the early days of music recording utilized that, which I think really reflects like Americana a lot. That was exactly what I was going for. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Like I did a, a road trip uh, a few years ago for a job and I was on the road for like eight weeks. And when you're going through the different cities, like I would play the radio a lot, like it was audiobooks or the radio. Cause I wanted to hear what was being played in these different places. And it's oh, like yeah. country music is strong. Yes. It is strong and actually, in middle America. Yeah. Um, it's, as far as like uh, life hacks, though, for uh, other indie filmmakers, the Smithsonian uh, is, a, is a great resource because um, they, they have bought up this huge uh, library of sort of historically significant music. And uh, whether that means, in this case, antique country or, um, you know, old jazz music or even up to much more contemporary stuff, uh, you can really do what I did was sort of uh, use them as a one-stop shop in a lot of cases uh, to license music all through one uh, company. And so how was licensing check, through uh, that company? Were prices were good? So, yeah, it, it was uh, really just the, the convenience uh, of, of grabbing a bunch, like I said, on, on just one form. Um, although uh, we could probably talk for the rest of the, sh the runtime just about the sort of legal issues of uh, what it means to license music, but it, that is not the, the topic yeah, of the show. That's not the topic today, but uh, that definitely could be yeah. a, an entire topic. Yeah, there's there's two different licenses you need for, for any song. You need both the composer 
and uh, the recording to be licensed. And so what I did was was I always looked for music when I could uh, that the compositions were in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So then I would only need the one license for right. the recording. That's a good tip. That's a good tip for our indie filmmakers because yeah. you you might not realize you need to have both of those. So you look in public domain. Yes. For, for, yeah, otherwise I mean, you get and, bit and in the, the butt later. That it took, sorry? <laughs> you, you'll get bit in the butt later. They will find you. Exactly. And one of the reasons that it there was a huge uh, lag between uh, the festival premiere and the actual release, and part of that was just securing all these different licenses that you never realize how much of that's going to go into getting a movie out there. Yeah, that's music is always for me the most challenging of any of my projects is just getting the music part down. So I, I try to make friends with musicians as much as possible. A good tip. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very good. OK, so then let's talk about uh, getting this funded. Uh, you did Indiegogo. We did. Uh, so we did um, a portion through Indiegogo. Uh, we were never going to be able to, to get everything that way. So um, we, we did raise a chunk that way, but just uh, a production uh, of our, our scale and scope. Uh, we, we didn't really have the sort of hooky, um, sort of viral quality mm -hmm. that uh, you're going to need, I think, if you're going to raise uh, $100,000 or whatever through there. Uh, so then we, we did have to do some private investors, and uh, I put a little bit of money in uh, myself, and my family did as well, and we just sort of cobbled it together that way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, a big mistake that you can make is uh, deciding that you're going to entirely crowdfund, and then you're, I ended, uh, would have ended up feeling disappointed if that had been uh, my attitude. So I, won't, I don't want to speak for the royal you uh, in this case, but... <laughs> Good. Okay. So then a lot of your funding then was just pulled together. Uh, you, you put your, your toes into some crowdfunding, but that really wasn't the core of your, your budget building for this. So yeah, I mean, we, we, we just you end up realizing that you're really limited to your network and the network of your uh, collaborators. You're probably not going to, there's just so many projects out there that we uh, did not have really the chance to sort of cross over into the the wider world of people just stumbling on crowdfunding. Right. I haven't been able to uh, utilize crowdfunding for any of my projects yet because of exactly that. Like, it's just the scope of the people you can already just ask directly and the people that are involved. Unless you've got some star power behind your project, I personally haven't seen success with uh, crowdfunding sites for indie films. Not to say it's not possible, but just in, in what I've seen from other people's projects and what we've talked about on the show, uh, do it. You might get a little bit like that. That could still be some food budget. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we were grateful for every dollar we got through the crowdfunding and it, it was a huge chunk of the budget, of course. Yeah, great. Awesome. So uh, on one, I think it was like maybe your blog or your bio somewhere. We were talking about you were talking about your film school essentially being the fact that you just are a cinephile. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you like have watched how many movies? Like it was so many. Uh, um, so the the site Letterboxd uh, mm -hmm. is is a um, sort of social media site for uh, for movie lovers uh, where you can track every movie that you watch. And I I did do the sort of obsessive task at one point when my wife was in nursing school and I was alone a lot um, of going through every movie on the site and saying whether I had seen it or not. And uh, I'm up above two thousand right now. That's great. Uh, I need to do that because I feel like I've seen so many. I was like, I bet my number's pretty high up there, too. Yeah. Letterboxd. It's and it doesn't I mean, have like an E at the end, right? It's just letter. Uh, yeah. Letterboxd. No yeah. E, yeah. Um, and <laughs> I really wish that I had thought to uh, make a bigger deal out of my 2000th. Um, I wasn't sort of 
tracking that obsessively, and I realized that my 2000th movie was I, Tanya, and I wish I had sort of made more of a fuss oh, out of that. Oh, yeah, uh, we, we, just inter- we interviewed the, uh, the editor for I, Tanya, and she right. was wonderful. It was, yeah. like, so great, and that, that's a great 2000th movie to have. It's a great movie. I just, like, I should have, like, you know, finally knocked out Gone with the Wind or something. Yeah, right? So with uh, people who haven't gone to film school, like yourself, like myself, uh, I really think that, like, watching as many movies as possible is your best asset that you can because now they're they're so readily available like you can hop on Netflix and whether they're great movies or awful movies you can watch so much and that's how that can inform your your vision you know and like you're you're learning every time you watch something and then go out there and make them yeah well and it, it's it, i think it's not just watching it but also uh, then really meaningfully engaging uh, extra textually yes so you watch the movie and then i mean Sort of the, the Criterion Collection is uh, almost a just a <laughs> uh, a cliche at this point for for movie lovers. It's like, yeah, we all love the Criterion Collection. But yeah, but there's people out there is... who are new at this who like maybe right. don't know that as a resource yet. So that that's wonderful. Sure. But what's really special about that is uh, when you buy one of their DVDs or their Blu-rays, you watch the movie, and then with everyone, there's a little booklet uh, with essays and, and interviews and usually some really fascinating stuff that. Um, is, is just right there in your hand to understand why you feel the way you do watching that movie. So when you watch uh, a Godard movie or a, or a Hiroshima Monomore, uh, to cite something that was a specific uh, influence on Westover, um, you watch it and you're like, well, I'm having these feelings, but I'm not sure what about the craft of it uh, summoned that for me. Uh, and then you have to sort of go and do the legwork to hunt down, well, this is the technique that went into creating that. Yeah, and that's that's always me after a movie where I'm like the annoying friend. I'm like, oh my gosh, the color choices definitely like evoked this feeling, and that's why the movement of the camera goes this way. It makes you feel unsettled, and that it, it just I'm I am that friend. Yeah, that's definitely they're like it was fine. The movie was fine. I was yeah. like, no, don't you feel? Don't yeah. you feel it? Well, and that's that that's what you need to do if you're gonna sort of I think meaningfully uh, in, engage with the art form and not just sort of receive it which is what so many people uh, want to do and, and really uh, in, in a lot of cases that's what you're making the movie for is, is for people to receive I'm, I'm not sort of fooling myself into believing that every person who watches this movie is going to sort of then sit down and pick it apart and uh, and you know identify all my influences and, and all of that but um, I think if you want to create it, then that's that's what you have to do is really uh, engage with it. Yeah, I think that's lovely. So what kind of advice do you have uh, for our indie filmmakers out there? Uh, well, you know, we, we have uh, touched on a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, something that, that Cam, uh, Cameron Bryson, my, again, uh, producing partner, director of photography, said early on um, that really impacted me was uh, I, I was feeling this anxiety, like, well, how are we ever going to get this accomplished uh, you know we're, we're just a couple of guys um, with an idea and he said nobody is going to give you permission to do this and that really uh, hung with me um, is, is like I, I think I was waiting for sort of like you know the angels of, of Hollywood to descend from the sky and say you are blessed with uh, you know the, the power to make this movie it's like you just got to decide you're going to do it and put one foot in front of the other and, until it's done um, I think the other thing that I always, uh, like to say is, um, surround yourself with, uh, people who are really great at their jobs and who know more than you do about their jobs, uh, and then know when it's time to just let them work. Um, there's, uh, 
there's a line uh, from somewhere or other that's like, uh, if you're smart, surround yourself with uh, other smart people who disagree with you. If you're stupid, surround yourself with smart people. If you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. And uh, that's how I think you, you want to be as a director is surround yourself with uh, skilled people who can sort of fill in the blanks uh, and, and uh, in your own uh, knowledge and experience and then don't sort of have an ego about it. Like don't uh, sort of second guess the, um, you know, the gaffer uh, doing their job uh, just for the sake of making yourself look like a big, powerful director. But then on the other hand, you have to know when to um, take a step forward and, and sort of be a, a uniting force for the group because uh, the director is, is not only working with the actors, but also is, is sort of the conductor of this whole, you know, crazy organism that is, is a film crew. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was definitely not always perfect uh, on any of those things that I just cited. And uh, it's something that I would, I would urge people to really think carefully about before they get out there and do it. Right on. So what kind of things that did you learn from this first film that you would change for the next one? Uh, well, I think the most important thing um, is is uh, the ability to uh, allow room for surprises. Uh, really early on, I, I was not allowing any uh, sort of breathing room for uh, unexpected things to happen. Um, and I, I really regret it. Uh, one of the first nights that we were shooting, my assistant director said, uh, you know, we, we had some downtime and we were just in Mitchell, South Dakota, uh, kicking around. And my assistant director said, like, this light is amazing. The space that we're in is amazing. Should we just like roll camera and, and just get some B-roll of the actors? And I said, no, I don't know where that would cut in. It's a waste of time. Let's let's not do that. And I could have made this movie uh, exactly as, as the script dictated, and that's what I was expecting to do. Um, and then a few days in, uh, we ended up in this amazing location uh, that you see in the movie, uh, 1880 Town, which is this sort of ghost town in uh, South Dakota. And we were just in this amazing spot and didn't have anything to shoot. And I said, oh my God, well, we just, <laughs> we just have to get something. So I just told the actors to walk around and, and talk and get to know each other. And, <clears throat> uh, and we would film and, and just chase them. And that ended up being this electrifying moment that really changed the course of the movie. And after that, um, I really loosened up a lot. I let the actors um, sort of play with the, the language a lot. I, I've said a lot more like if there's lines that don't feel natural uh, in your voice to say it this way, then just put your own spin on it, rephrase it. Um, and in, in some cases, uh, there are whole little sort of bits at the beginning and end of a scene where they're just sort of warming up uh, into the moment and then sort of playing themselves out of the moment that end up being some of the most uh, exciting and real um, moments in the, the movie. And, and uh, I could have had a version <laughs> that looks just like this, but had way less sort of life and energy to it. Right. Uh, and I'm really glad I learned that. Uh, when I did, and I just wish I could have learned it a few days earlier. Yeah, that's a really fantastic tip because uh, I, I could imagine a lot of like novice filmmakers or first-time filmmakers are just like, no, I wrote this, I, th I see it this way, this is the way it's going to be. But you, you start working, you get out there, and you realize it, it is a living, breathing thing. You plan as much as you can, but things are going to happen, and like magical things are going to be handed to you. It's just, are you going to go grab it? Yeah, well, and it, it depends on the kind of movie you're making, of course, because uh, somebody like uh, Stanley Kubrick or, or David Fincher, 
Uh, those are people who their movies are little dioramas and the actors are their little stop motion puppets and, and the, the text is the text. Um, I was looking for something much more naturalistic mm -hmm. and uh, it would have gotten very airless very quickly if I was trying to make a naturalistic movie where every single syllable needed to be exactly the way I wrote right. it. Well then, uh, before we wrap this up, I wanna talk to you then a little bit about directing actors and what you learned there. Cause we've talked about working with the crew and the production side of stuff, but what did you learn from working with actors with your script? Uh, well, like I say, um, I think learning to not have an ego uh, was important. Uh, <laughs> Something that uh, is, is really interesting to me uh, was to realize when you can disagree with the actors about uh, what's not on screen. Um, I'm trying to think of how to talk around it, but I guess I'll just, I'll just go ahead and say it. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a debate uh, between the actors and myself as to whether the characters consummate their relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believed uh, that these characters didn't and uh, and they believed that they did and and the, that was the sort of two competing behind the scenes ideologies and and it really drove their performance uh, that there was a more sort of intense connection between them whereas I saw it as a different kind of connection and there was a little while where it was like you know I was operating on this belief that like well I'm the god of the story uh, I I know the truth and and you need to know that um, you have to to create that separation for yourself and know that your perspective is, is just one interpretation at a certain point, you're an audience member in your own story and, and you just have to be if the actors are gonna create something that is real and, uh, and vivid for them. Um, you know that, I also needed to realize how to uh, communicate with them in a way that would let them do their best work, mm -hmm. um, which was, uh, not always always easy for me because I would uh, try to sort of communicate with them on an intellectual level uh, where they needed to communicate on a more emotional level. And I think you can probably see I'm using my hands more and more as I try to articulate these things that are that are hard to right. put into words. Um, but even just just for one thing, um, Kelsey, my lead actress, uh, asked me at a certain point to uh, just call her Jane while we were shooting, um, because if I if I. Uh, sort of called out, you know, Kelsey, move your hand this way, or Kelsey, uh, you know, try it this way. It would take her out of the moment and remind her, I am Kelsey playing this role. And and if I said, hey, Jane, would you do this? Uh, that would just sort of let her keep in the flow of the scene. Right. And then also, uh, we did so much improvising. Um, and I would, would fall into a bad habit of just sort of thinking improvisation is completely unstructured. So... Uh, hey guys, just go run around Monument Valley and just talk. Uh, and then at a certain point, we realized like, well, they don't have anything to talk about because you're not directing them. Right. So you have you have to sort of throw some uh, structure into the thing, or you're just gonna end up with people wandering around going, hey, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for all of that information. You've given us some really great tips, uh, some practical resources. Uh, the Smithsonian collection for songs, uh, and then the letterbox if you want to see a bunch of movies or keep track of where you're watching movies, uh, along with some really nice, practical, connecting with people collaborative advice. So thank you so much for all of that. Uh, if you guys want to check out West of Her, you can find it all over the internet, video on demand. So definitely check that out. Ethan, remind everyone where they can find you on the internet. 
Uh, my Twitter handle is Ethan R. A. Warren, and uh, my website is EthanRAWarren.com. Awesome. Make sure you go follow Ethan, and you can keep track of his career. I hope you've got another film in the works. Uh, you can find. Uh, you know, I've, I've got some. I've you got do? some stuff moving. I've got some ideas. Yeah. Good. 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 I can't wait to see it, and then maybe we'll have you in studio to talk about those when they come out. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, if you guys uh, haven't subscribed yet to On the Fly Filmmaking and Popcorn Talk, please do. You can find us on iTunes if you want the podcast version. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast version. Uh, You can find us on YouTube if you'd like the video version. And another great podcast out there is Conversations with Maria Menounos, who is the founder here at Popcorn Talk and AfterBuzz TV. So make sure you check that out. I'm Mary Lou Mandel. You can find me all over the internet at Mary Lou Mandel, and we will catch you next time on On the Fly Filmmaking. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.